Welcome to the Final Girls Podcast. I'm Anna Bogutska, the co-founder of the Final Girls Collective and your podcast host. We might be on hiatus in between seasons, but it is October. It's spooky season, or as I heard it being called the other day, Millennial Christmas. And there is so much good horror content coming out. So we're going to cover it. Now, usually we're covering new releases, new films and TV shows over on our Patreon, which I would obviously love for you to support. But I'm going to make an exception because it is once again that time of the year where Mike Flanagan releases a new show on Netflix. And it is now tradition. I welcome back friend of the podcast and brilliant broadcaster Louise Blaine to talk in detail, in depth, maybe cry a little, over The Midnight Club, which is the new Mike Flanagan and Leah Fong show that's just landed today on Netflix. Now, as per usual, the first part of the conversation is spoiler-free, so if you haven't watched the show, if you need to be convinced, if you have an aversion to the Flanagan monologue, to the patented Flanagan monologue, then maybe that chunk of the conversation will convince you to give The Midnight Club a chance. And for anyone who mainlines the show over the weekend or does not really mind spoilerific conversation before they watch something, then the second part of the show is also for you. I will make a very clear separation in between the spoiler parts so you are not caught off guard. As usual, you can follow The Final Girls on Instagram and Twitter at The Final Girls UK. I would also deeply appreciate a review and a subscription and a rating over on Spotify Podcasts or Apple Podcasts. Reading those little reviews absolutely make my day. And I appreciate every single one of you who gives us a little star rating, especially the ones who make it five stars. You can also find me blithering on and sharing everything I do over my own Twitter feed at Anna B. Demented. And in the coming weeks, there will be a lot of Flanniverse content. So, and with all of that said, please enjoy our take on The Midnight Club. It's that time of the year again. It's lovely. I'm, I'm so glad it's just a lovely regular thing, Anna. It makes me so happy. It is like it, it's better than Christmas. It's flanna Christmas. Flanna it's Christmas. Flanna-ween. <laughs> that means we we eat flans and the fl- to celebrate the return of the flanniverse. Exactly. Okay. We eat flans. Mm-hmm. We watch a flan film mm-hmm. or a flan show, and then we talk about the flanniverse. Delicious. <laughs> you should film that and show every Christmas. <laughs> <laughs> Louise, there is simply no question, and it is always a delight. And at least on my part, it is already a firm assumption that every time there's a new Flanagan project, we shall be having this conversation. Absolutely. I, absolutely. I would have been very hurt had you not got in touch and been like, uh, it's time. It's time we talk I Flan- Flanagan. could never, and I would never do that to you. <laughs> Thank you. Well, it's lovely to be back. Thank you for having me. Always a pleasure. And I'm going to start in a different way this time around. We will be doing a a non-spoilery conversation for anyone, well, most people will not have seen the entirety of The Midnight Club yet. We have, Mm -hmm. and we're dying to talk about it. But the first part of the chat will be non-spoilerific, and then 
I will very, very clearly mark the spoiler section for anyone who wants to listen before they watch the show or needs a space to vent their feelings of which they will have many Mm -hmm. yes process is the word but i also think vent because sometimes i feel that way when i listen to podcasts about something i have a lot of feelings about i'm like yeah i just want to walk around listen to people processing and kind of vent quietly but also very loudly just inside my head yes so we we're here to either quiet the screaming or <laughs> help it feel like it's releasing even further. We're here to le- we're here to give you a little vents inside of your head. That's what we're here for. <laughs> screaming vents. Yes. yes. It's like uh whisper screaming. Yes. Whisper screaming, which is my favorite kind of it's like stage screaming. <laughs> yes. One time I had to really get someone off of the stage and I remember whisper screaming into their ear and i think they were terrified of me for basically since then (laughs) that would have terrified me i'm glad i've only had your supportive noises like when i walked out to present that bafta i could literally hear you whooping i was like there's anna i can hear anna that's fine it goes both ways good okay i can whisper screen and i can whisper support okay so instead of asking you what your relationship with mike flanagan's work is which we know we do I'm going to ask you, what is your relationship with the work of Christopher Pike, who is the author of The Midnight Club, the book? Okay, so I remember that Christopher Pike was the author that everyone who was rebelling against Goosebumps was reading. Like, Goosebumps were all of a sudden, when you started reading Goosebumps books by R.L. Stein, you felt like you were a cool kid because they were covered in goo and they were had these cool cartoon covers and like Welcome to Dead House and stuff. But then you got to a point and it was, I think it was just before Point Horror. They're kind of Point Horror adjacent. There was this sort of middle period where suddenly there was this other guy writing books about teenagers that were scary and gory and horrible and about you know, when you're 11 and you're like, oh, what's horror? It's about people with hammers. And he was the one that was writing those books. And I remember a friend loaned me a Christopher Pike book. Not that I don't, I don't think my mom ever stopped me from reading anything. She knew I was already a horror nut. But Christopher Pike felt quite illicit. And the covers looked like that cover, that font at the start of the show. Like they already evoked that. So I have... I don't think I read all of the stories that are in The Midnight Club. I did read The Midnight Club, even though I'd love to actually find it and remember it because I don't. But yeah, I read a, I've read a few and they were kind of passed around, like sort of illicit VHSs, but they were books and I kind of loved that. And The so Immortals. there was other people? Yeah, yeah, yeah. There was other people who were reading Christopher Pike books? Mm-hmm. You see, this is why I love... Um, asking people this because everybody grows up in a different environment and i i remember very vividly graduating from goosebumps to christopher pike books but i was yeah. very much the the i was a, a constant reader when i was a kid obsessed over the goosebump books read every single one of them i remember them like i could buy them basically wholesale in the little shop that was underneath my parents flat where i grew up and they were translated widely into spanish uh but christopher pike books weren't really so i remember getting there was these fairs that happened once a year i think there were scholastic fairs they were scholastic book fairs yeah yeah but basically that's where i discovered harry potter that's where i picked up a lot of books and they were all 
untranslated. So they were kind of imported and presented at these book fairs for kids. And I would always like beg for, you know, a huge allowance for my parents and just go and basically gorge myself some on books. Nothing has really changed because I still do that, except for the fact that now it's my own money and not my parents. And they're much more expensive books (laughs) somehow. Yes. (laughs) But I remember discovering Chain Letter, I think, was the one that I read first. And and they felt illicit because they were not translated into Spanish. So other kids weren't really making the effort to read in other languages like I was doing, or at least it didn't feel like they were. And I was just devouring these books, mostly from either the library or um, the very, very early internet, or kind of just by finding them at these book fairs or at sort of like international bookshops and whatnot that were around Barcelona. And it seemed like the perfect in-between author between R.L. Stein and Stephen King. Yes, gateway author. Can I ask mm. a can I ask a question that's a slight it's a slight It's slight, a conversation. It's a slight, so you're saying that Goosebumps books were translated? Yes, Did they were. Did any of them have like fun titles that weren't the same as the English titles? Oh my god, they probably all, they all were. I don't remember any of them off the top of my head because much That's like re- you, as much as I remember reading them, I don't remember any of the and I remember the plots if you show yeah. me them. Yeah. And I used to watch the show. Yeah. I used to tape it. But uh let me let me look it up very quickly because they were called in Spanish pesadillas, which means nightmares. Pes- pesadillas. Yeah. yeah. Um let me see. Oh my god, I had all of these books. So the first one that comes up in a very quick Google image search is The Attack of the Mutant. El Ataque del Mutante. Yeah. Mm-hmm. There is One Day in Horrorlandia. Okay, so One Day in Horrorland. <laughs> yep, that's so they were very literal translations. That's very. <laughs> or like the um the curse cuckoo. The cuckoo, the cuckoo clock of doom, cuckoo clock of doom. Yeah. yeah, or the oh my god, this was my favorite one. It's the one with the puppet, the night of the living doll, like the living dummy. That's the one. Yeah. Yes. Okay. Well, this is so good. Really this, is a fun, this, sorry, this is a fun game to play. I'm sorry. <laughs> <laughs> Goosebumps were. I think those Scholastic book fairs. It's nice to know that mm. those Scholastic book fairs were basically a global thing in the nineties. I'm like wherever that, those book fairs were just everywhere. I loved book fair day, and do you remember they kind of unfolded. And when they came into school, mm. they had these like sort of unfoldable bookcases that were on these wheels, and then they would just yes. unfold them, and that's where all the books lived. And there was just like I think for a lot of us, obviously, there was that sort mm. of oh, so exciting watching all the books appear, and I've got my pocket money, and uh. I never saw it unfold. I just always went down to the gymnasium, and there was just like these. I mean, in my mind, obviously, as a child, I remember it being huge. Obviously, yes. it was probably just one room with like four tables. Yeah, but there were covered in books that I'd never read, that I'd never seen, that were not available anywhere else. Or, you know, it just felt like, oh, I have to get them here, here and now. Yeah, yeah the exclusivity <laughs> thing. But yes, I will stop distracting us with Goosebumps chat. No, um, I wanted to ask as well, because Christopher Pike, interestingly, despite Arl Stein being widely adapted and very much, you know, kiddie horror in a way, and Stephen King is obviously, I believe, the most adapted author of all time at this mm-hmm. point, but Christopher Pike has kind of been largely ignored by film and TV people. Kind of, what expectations did you have going into the Midnight Club, which I would say is probably the, the biggest adaptation of his work ever? 
Yeah, because it's all of, not all of them, but it's a lot of them, right? It's mm-hmm. not just one story, it's multiple other stories, which obviously mm-hmm. Mike Flanagan's very clever about doing. I actually had no idea what I was going to see. And then it did make me think about the fact that we haven't seen any Christopher Pike. And I do wonder mm-hmm. if that's a snobbishness around teen books. We didn't get any, tran- we'd never had any adaptations of a single, I don't remember a single point horror adaptation. There was mm-hmm. no The Boyfriend, there was no April Fool. Goosebumps, because it was children's, it was almost like it was marketable. Meanwhile, mm. teen, I think, was just seen as schlock and seen as trash, no matter what it was. I think there was there's kind of an element of that that probably still stands now, but then YA is a significantly more bountiful place with Hunger Games, Twilight, everything else. But 90s horror fiction, not so much. This is what I was thinking, because YA really came into its own as like a powerful, very marketable genre, not just of books, which it always has been, but of um film and TV, pretty yeah. much with Twilight. And that was over 10 years ago. Yeah. So like the fact that everybody just ignored Christopher Pike's stories, I, it just seems insane to me. It's, so I was, yeah, it's madness. I was very excited. It also seems to me that the premise... Uh, seems to be very tailor-made for Flanagan's brand of sad horror. So many themes, Anna. (laughs) I'm drowning in themes. I'm drowning in loss. I'm drowning in queerness. I'm drowning in fate, sacrifice, wellness, global warming. There's so much. It's just... just, and it's kind of astonishing that actually he manages to fit it into 10 episodes and doesn't constantly feel like it's being shoved down. You know, nostalgia, it does nostalgia mm. in the right way. <laughs> Unlike Fear Street, which does it in the wrong way. Nostalgia mm-hmm. is the sound of an Apple Mac computer in 1995. That is nostalgia. That noise, and it's there. It's in the first episode of Midnight Club. It's there. It's the noise of a, of a Mac and that Damn, is that's a soundbite. That is that sheer nostalgia that taps into a part of you where you go, I remember that. You've just taken me back to my childhood room where I wrote endlessly in notebooks. And it's instantly about story and about mm. the stories we all tell and live and experience and shape. And it's a joy. Before we dive into the smorgasbord of themes that has seemingly rendered you speechless. Speechless. (laughs) (laughs) Can you summarize the premise of The Midnight Club for me? The Midnight Club follows a group of terminally ill teenagers in a hospice called Brightcliff, where on a nightly basis they sit at midnight, they gather around the fire and they tell each other stories and specifically scary stories. And they have to be scary stories because they say it in the fact that very few things scare dying teenagers, which is a Mm -hmm. very, very bleak premise, but something that I think, like you and I have discussed with Scream, the teenagers have not a darkness to them because there is a sweetness, but they have a very interesting way of discussing this reality of their lives, which grounds it and brings humanity to it. And the humanity is what Flanagan always brings to all his shows. And you mentioned some of the themes, but before we get into this, I kind of want to address the the thing that might be slightly off-putting perhaps to some viewers who enjoyed The Haunting of, of Hill House, who enjoyed The Haunting of Bly Manor, Midnight Mass. This 
is a departure from those shows because because it is centered on teenagers and the terminally ill part is very defining of the of the show and the characters and the tone of it but i think the teenness of it all might be off-putting to people so i wanted to ask you kind of does it feel different compared to his quote-unquote adult shows yes i think it feels very different actually Mm -hmm. and i think it feels different not just in i think thematically those are huge themes Mm. huge um think these are uncomfortable realities these are not fictions and i think that's always what he does so well right we we balance off the pain of being human and the reality of being human with the supernatural and it's almost like the supernatural gives us a little massage and tells us everything's going to be okay because actually the reality of life is sometimes much more difficult than the almost reassurance which is an entirely a theme in itself throughout this entire Mm. show right that push and pull of reality and fiction and i think um, I think it's difficult. I think there are a couple of moments where I felt like it erred away from that into a slight schmaltz, which, but only slightly, and I think it steers itself back to to, to home. Like it steers its course really. Um, I think it it risks it because it's a risky thing that I don't I don't think I would trust anyone else than Flanagan to do. Um, but in, in the end, I think he manages to to deal well with it and. I guess the the feelings that we will have for it are what we bring ourselves, right? Rather than what he gives. That's an interesting point though. And I feel like for me, this show became such, so much more of a mirror than previous show perhaps. And perhaps it is of, of the noticeable absence of the patented Flanagan monologue. It seemed restrained Although much more ambitious, I think, in terms of a story structure, which we'll discuss, but it seemed to be much, much tender yes. towards its characters because of their youth, yes. because he's dealing with a very new, very young cast of actors, very young cast of characters. There is such a tragedy inbuilt into the premise that you almost, the show doesn't want to make, put them through anything else. I think you're right, and it's, it's totally in that, in the fact that there there is a nice, uh, there is a more, despite the fact that these characters, it's not that they don't have spine. Some of the characters have spine for days. They have grumps. They have attitude problems, as they all should. As you know, there's the the angst of being a teenager is bad enough before suddenly mm. everything that being a teenager encompassed for you is suddenly gone, and you're you're somewhere else. But I do think that the the monologue approach is interesting because his monologues, as we have often forgiven him for, it's usually just a close-up of an actor's face while they're telling a story. But actually what we do here is he uses the monologue. The monologue becomes a story and we are then taken and transported to that place. And I think Mm -hmm. that's a really nice way of dealing with those. And I think there's a real, in those monologues, there's a real intertextuality where if the other characters have decided that the story is not doing what they want it to, if the jump scares are too yes. many, if they're wrong, if something is named wrong, I'm sorry, we're coming back to reality and we're going to stomp you. No, no, you can't do that. And I think adding that element to those is suddenly putting a playfulness on it, but also, again, mm. reinforcing that story of our own realities and stories. I'm so glad you brought that up because that's one of the things about this that so worked for me. I am a sucker for structure. I will say this up front. Perhaps it is because I struggle with it as a writer. It's like I need structure. And it's I think it's one of the most difficult things to achieve in a story. And here it's 
it is not just in the story. The premise itself is one. They tell each other these scary stories at midnight, but then they interrupt each other. They're influencing the stories. They're also putting themselves in the story. So the stories are also a way for us to learn more about the characters and to learn deeper things about the characters that they're able to tell each other or even to admit to themselves. So they cushion it in fiction, which is beautiful. I mean, if like, it's again, it's just buttering the themes on the toast of a (laughs) Netflix high-end production and you know what just butter me up just like put all the all the butter on the flat I'm just making this motion (laughs) of just buttering things endlessly episode after episode and the first episode kind of does it really beautifully because it just hits where the horror fans live yes the jump scare gag the black cat the sort of the snarky commentary as the story is being told the petition to the audiences both the characters in the in the episode and us to just trust yeah. and wait for the storyteller to take them by the hand and lead them where they want them to go yeah. um I, I know we're meant to talk about themes, but I wanted to to ask you, kind of, what do you think about the the sort of Russian doll structure of story within a story, which then gets also expanded as the show continues, and there's more things that are revealed that complicate everything. I love the layers. I genuinely, I think when we watch an anthology movie, it's what normally happens as horror fans is we watch an anthology movie, and some of the shorts are good. Most of them are disappointing, and the wraparound story isn't much to talk about either. <laughs> Let's face it, that's mostly the case. It's not the case all the time. There are Go some off. fun that are not. But there is one exception, and that is Trick or Treat. Trick or Treat, exactly. Trick or Treat is magnificent. And only in its final reveals do we know that it is so much more intertextual and lovely. Mm-hmm. Right, but so then, but suddenly when Mike Flanagan does that, and when, when, when they approach, when his team approach this, it instantly feels deft. It instantly feels confident. They nail that first episode. Here we go. We're sitting around a fire. Whether you've got your chamomile tea or your wine or whatever you're drinking, you're in for the night. And you are then in for the series because they have so expertly told you exactly how this is going to go that whether you're back, whether you're hearing their stories or whether you're in the halls of Briarcliff or Brightcliff or whether you're out in the grounds, you're just building all these lovely little layers, but you know you'll go back to the stories, but you don't want to hurry back. So the balance is always perfectly there. Like, past, future, not reality, it's all equally as appealing. Unlike mm. other media like this, where you go, oh, just let me back there now. But actually, like Yellow Jackets. Yellow Jackets does the mm-hmm. perfect version of that. If you actually don't, if you're in the past with the girls, it's brilliant. If you're in the future with the women, holy shit, this is good. Oh, we'll go back. It's like that, but with anthology short stories and let's talk a little bit about the themes that you echoed before there's you brought up fear street earlier and i think it's an inevitable comparison because it is also set in the 90s and it is also a netflix production they live there they've come from the same house uh so to speak so nostalgia is at its peak 90s nostalgia is kind of reaching an apex that i think we're all kind of mildly sick of but Mm. how does this deal with all of that you you mentioned it a little bit before but i think it's so much more than just nostalgia or high-waisted jeans or 90s paraphernalia 
it is because it's them existing in that world. And I think that's the difference. I didn't really like Fear Street tremendously much. I felt like it was, again, focusing on the wrong things of nostalgia. But I feel like this just exists. And I think it feels like it's just set in the 90s. So yes, it will tick our nostalgia boxes, but only because it feels legitimate. You know, you've got a character excited about the release of the PlayStation, which came out in, what, 1996. You've got the tech, you've got the IMAX, you've got the Apple computers, you've got the fact that people were sitting at home in their bedroom writing in their notebooks, you've got the poster, you've got, at one point, you have the best blind melon into an episode. You know, it's it feels genuine that when you do get the odd wave of a, I don't know, a magazine, Fangoria magazine or a Stephen King paperback, you're like, oh, look at that. But it mm. doesn't feel like... They're constantly prodding you in the face with, look, it's the 90s. It's just, this is the 90s and this is set then, have at it. And I feel like that's the important distinction. Mm. And what are some of the other kind of, you know, themes that you think really surface for you? So aside from, so in terms of the 90s themes or just bigger themes? No, just just in terms of the show itself. Okay. Okay. So we talked about loss and fate Mm. and the existence of the supernatural wellness queerness but also what i loved especially about um because talking about hiv and aids these are mm. the fact that they are addressing things that the, the nurse is talking to him about interview with a vampire because obviously the queer intertextuality of interview with a vampire mm-hmm. he wants to tell this kid about it just feels so genuine so the themes never feel forced so we've i mean the, the theme of of death overhangs it all and illness which we all have we all have our connections with in various different Mm -hmm. ways um but i just felt like it addresses them so maturely um and what other themes got me i made a list and i made a giant list you made a theme i made a theme list (laughs) it's in my little notes app the one that i (laughs) let's see and also it hit out with the 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 very staple american things of like the prom and the characters missing mm. out on prom and i thought that was a There's real There's a teenness. Yeah, that's they're they're the right age. Also they're played by kids of the right age. They are. Which is they- not very 90s. <laughs> they're not 27. No. They're no, not there's in their 30s. the the overhanging of illness and death is it is a theme but it is also I just think it's part of the text itself. What I think really struck me is actually is how these characters, all of them, not just the kids who are terminally ill, but also the the nurses, the head of Brightcliff, everyone they encounter from the outside world, how they each interact with just the idea of their immortality, of how difficult it is, not just for them to accepted and they all are kind of at different stages of it um but also for the people around them like and we'll we can talk about some of the characters in in more detail perhaps in the spoiler section but there are some clear interaction interactions where this bubble of it's happening but it's not really happening and the not really happening element is because they're so young and because we're so enamored with the teenness of it all with the you know with the flutters of a crush or with the talk about prom or with their snarky bitchy comments at each other and kind of getting to know their personalities and how they're prickled and the power dynamics between them i loved how the show also kind of fell through 
fell into all the teen the teen horror uh expectations that we have you know meeting meeting the set of kids in the cafeteria in the same way or getting to know everyone in their in the little clip click except their little click is not who they're friends with it's what kind of cancer they have what kind of illness they have which just puts this darkness to it that you kind of cannot escape but you want to forget about it because you fall in love with the characters or at least I did but then there's always a reminder of it it's either because they're too weak to run very quickly because they're reminded that they can't stay up too much too late because they literally they they constantly are tired and they need to rest because one of them needs to put makeup on so that he doesn't look too pale to go to his own prom it's it's the little reminders of their mortality and their illnesses. It doesn't actually, I think, contrary to perhaps what people might expect for a show whose premise is, oh, it's terminally ill kids. It doesn't actually go into too much illness gore, if that makes sense. Like there's it's so quotidian throughout the entire show. It's in the background because it's there every day. And when it does rear its head it's in those moments of makeup or whatever or then when they're being in the recovery room which becomes like this kind of almost other space which is where mm. which is almost like a almost like a room two three set it's like a it's another location for them when they're not able to walk around and when their illnesses do get worse that's mm. always present but what you're saying about reminders i found that and i think i wrote that in my notes it's like every time you think you're just watching a drama or is there something romance or a light horror? Suddenly you you get those reminders. And I think it's actually so important that those reminders are there. And I think it's a real example of sort of deafness of the writing because otherwise it would be mm. disingenuous and offensive, frankly. <laughs> and I was scared of that when I started watching. I, I'll mm. admit, I was scared. I was watching that first episode going, oh, uh, this, this has so many ways this can get this so wrong. <laughs> And it, mm. it doesn't do that because, again, as you say, it's the maturity of not just it being a theme, but it being a permanent a permanent part of the existence and almost the bedrock of the entire show and its script. It's a foundation. Mm. That's, how I, that's how I read it. But I really want to get into spoilers, but I wanted to ask you before we do, kind of who, there are some regulars from the Flaniverse that make their return. Yes. And of who were you excited to see and also did their new much more reduced i should say roles did they work for you were they satisfying do you know i think it was more satisfying because they were sidelined because they were bit parts almost Mm -hmm. um obviously one maybe slightly more but someone like rahul kohli just rocking Mm up in someone's story just being a part of that i think it gives the show to the teenagers which is who it belongs to because if it, mm-hmm. you know, if we did get, you know, Kate rocking up Mike's wife, it, it would feel too, it would feel too much like what we're presumably going to get with House of Usher. You know, mm-hmm. I think it it gave it its own identifying theme of, yes, we know you're in this world, but don't worry, we're not going to take away from it. We're not going to distract. And it was only, the, there's only what, four? Is it four, three or there's four? Zach, there's Zach Guilford, there's Henry James, Rahul Kohli, Samantha Sloyan. Also, but she has a more regular part. Yes, she's more. Yeah, yeah. We'll definitely yes, discuss, we discuss her. her. But also, we've got Heather Langenkamp, Holy who has a shit. recurring role. <laughs> yes, she does. And who better to head up this entire house than you know just the woman who took on 
the, the who took on Freddy Krueger. And I think especially it's very clever because there's a lot of dreams. There's a lot of Wes Craven right. style stuff. Yes. Like that was not an accident. Oh, I'm sure it wasn't. Nothing's an accident Never. in the Flanniverse. But also, I really love for her, for Heather, that she is one of the original Final Girls from that kind of crop of highly influential um, horror films in the 70s and the 80s who still hasn't had a sort of like comeback moment. Like, we have a lot of Jamie Lee. We like, but we're not really having a Heather moment yet. Do you think, like, do you think this role could be that for her? Do you think it's because they already did the meta version before meta was cool with New Nightmare? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, that's the problem. I was thinking that. She's ahead of the game. She already did it. She played herself. Yeah. I mean, honestly, I think New Nightmare deserves uh, a lot more praise than it gets. Oh, yeah. I've, I've always thought that since I first watched it. But like, yeah, I wonder, I wonder why that is. Like, she doesn't, I wonder if it was because New Nightmare came too early or whether because she doesn't do that much kind of press or because yeah. there hasn't been a resurrection of a nightmare on elm street that has brought her back in the same way that say halloween 2018 brought back jamie lee curtis and kind of reintroduced her to a whole new generation of fans and kind of reminded everyone that there's only one laurie strode yes we haven't really had that with Nancy, although I know that there's a documentary that has been circulating around festivals that is uh, about her and her role as Nancy. Oh, interesting. Oh, I didn't know yeah, that. Yeah, I haven't and seen it And I now want to see it. I really, mm-hmm. Because there might be a story there. There might be a reason that there's not, or maybe there is coming. But I do think like in that revisiting of the slasher villains that we've had, like I like to think that they've all been sitting in a pub and only Freddy is just sitting there, like knives on the table, like this, where am I going? Why don't I have like a proper... Freddy's not allowed at the pub because he always gets weird and like he needs to sit outside. He's too horny for his own good. And not in a good way. He's awful. He's like outside trying to rap at the window and everyone's like, Freddy, when you stop wanking in the pub, we will let you in. (laughs) At the moment, no. You made it weird, dude. You made it weird. He did make it all weird. He made it very weird. And the fact that he made it weirder than, you know, Charles Lee Ray, like Chucky, the fact that he made it weirder than him, because he did. He's still weirder than the horny doll. He still is. Yes. You know why? Because the horny doll fucks the horny other doll. Yep. Yep. And they have a great child. They have a... Yeah, they do. Oh, I'm so excited. Season two of the TV series is coming out this month. I cannot wait. Listen, you know what's coming for this podcast next year. I I am excited for the Chucky verse, the Chucky cinematic OMG. universe. OMG. <laughs> also, I really want just like as a complete digression, want to shout out the documentary Living with Chucky, which I programmed for Fantastic Fest and which I loved. It's such a good send up of the entire franchise and that um, characters and those films and the show's legacy. It's really beautifully made. I can't wait to see that. It's very good. But we're coming back to the Flanniverse. Yes. Um, I think it's time we've been circling around this in a non-spoilery way. But Spoiler plug hole. Before we do that, how would you prime people going in to watching The Midnight Club? What should they expect? I think, um, hmm. I think uh, this is not Bly Manor. This is not The Haunting of Hill House. This is a teen drama. And I think 
when I started thinking a lot with my teen brain, I was enjoying, as we've discussed, all the thematic stuff with my adult horror brain. But the episodes themselves and the stories I enjoyed with my, I think my 15 year old self would have thought this is the best TV series in the world. So I think go in with, with all your, with all your ages and um, yeah, enjoy it. Let's start digging into spoilers. For anyone still listening, please consider this your big red flag spoiler alert. Get out. For everything to do with the Midnight Club. To those before. To those after. To us now. And to those beyond. Seen. Or unseen. Here. But not here. Seen or unseen. Here but not here. So I want to get into characters first. Because how we meet them, how they end up, um, and our entry point into this, uh, the leading lady, I think, of the of the entire uh, of the entire ensemble is Alonka, who's mm-hmm. played by a man Benson. Um, we meet her first. We get diagnosed with her, and then she is the newcomer. She's drawn to Brightcliff, and she is the most curious and perhaps the most hopeful of the characters for me. What do you think of her as the lead? I really like her and I think the I think it's really important that we join with her and it's so important because we go on this journey with her that actually a lot of the characters who are already at Brightcliff have already been through and I think that's why she mm-hmm. works so well. So she's curious, she's hopeful, she's I don't want to die, I don't want to do this, I want to get home and I want to live my life and do all these things. But she she learns to become quite humble and she learns to mm. what to say and what not to say only through experience and not in a negative way where she feels like she's offending anyone but there's some lovely moments where there's a real reality in the way that the other characters respond to her or like well I don't want your pity or I don't want this or I don't want that and I think we do directly enter into this world with her and we learn a lot at the same time and I think I think she's an interesting character and I think she fucks up and I think she mm. then apologizes for fucking up. She does. And also she is, I think that with her, we're going through all the stages of accepting that she's dying. That's it. And it's incredibly painful to watch because even when she, I think in the first, we only see her for about five minutes before she collapses and then gets diagnosed with thyroid cancer. And in those five minutes, and I think I was texting you as they were happening. You were. (laughs) And I had completely, I always try to ignore kind of what anything was about. So I I blocked out of my mind that there were terminally ill kids. So it almost came as a surprise to me. And I was like, I was already in love with her because what she was doing is saying that, you know, she's obsessed with Mary Shelley and that horror was invented by a teenage girl, which is an actual sentence that I've said about 1700 times to anyone who would listen. And just as I was breathlessly texting you to tell you how much I love her, she gets diagnosed with terminal thyroid cancer and her reaction is this thing of, but how? I skipped a year. I'm going to Stanford. All of these things. I've worked so hard. 
this can't be happening. I can work my way out of this. And I think she's working her way into accepting that it's happening throughout the entire show, not just those couple of 10 minutes. Oh, yeah. I think this might be a good point to bring in the whole Paragon cult subplot, which is the overarching plot of the entire show and which Ilonka's obsessed with. How does that stack up with the themes that we were talking about earlier, the story within story structure, and with her particular journey? Because she's the one who really gets obsessed with it. Okay, so I think it's especially interesting that she finds all this through a book. She finds mm. in the library, she finds the Paragon Diaries. And again, that's not an accident. And that gives us an extra layer of the past. So we're, while we are given this 1930s, this woman who is obsessed with the Greek goddesses, especially the goddess of wellness and healing, um, I think what that does when we watch a horror TV show is it brings in quite a horror-y trope, doesn't it? We're in a big old house and it turns out there was a cult that did rituals in the basement. <laughs> and I think yeah. that's a very pleasing extra element when we are mm. going through the emotions with Ilonka <laughs> and we are going through our acceptance that it's actually quite reassuring to think, oh, there's now these time skips where Ilonka's finding herself into the basement where things are all grainy and strange and there's a cult at work so I do think it does a very clever job and it's never feeling it never feels tacked on because it's actually a core part of the story this repeated hourglass that people want to constantly turn over to constantly lengthen their lives mm -hmm. having that theme that supernatural theme is the balance that we actually need to go through the emotions that we actually go through with the characters so I think it's pretty vital there's also a a theme that is surfaced through the Paragon cult that is kind of a really touchy and slightly dangerous one to explore. And it's the selling of hope. Yeah. Which is so unbelievably difficult to handle delicately, especially because all the characters are so young, especially in through the character of, um, of Julia James, who is the, the girl who, had written the diary and who had um been miraculously cured yep. through the ritual of her cancer and that kind of Ilanka sees herself in or sees as a beacon of hope and who we then meet as an adult version in Samantha Sloyan's character who you know Ilanka interacts with in the woods and is this kind of kooky um plant-based businesswoman make the tea um, drink the water yeah. <laughs> exactly and Everything, all everything, that subplot, especially towards the end when it all got wrapped up, it's so dire to see Lonka just hang on to the possibility of a miracle. Yeah. When everything else has failed, there's this pos tiny, tiny possibility of an occult or ritualistic miracle being able to happen that will just end all of this, that will save her, that will confirm that she's the exception. Yeah. How did you feel about the resolution of that? I found it so difficult to watch her say, I think it's me. I think it's it's me that's been cured mm. in the ritual. She says that, that Dr. Stanton says that someone's cured and it's definitely going to be me. And I think the the crushing reality of a misdiagnosis for a different character, which we are all mm. super happy for and the characters themselves are so happy for and Ilonka learns, you know, that is a good thing. Um, I think watching that progress was really, I cry. I mean, let's, did, 
I mean, I cried a lot in this show. Not near, not as quite the situation of the end of Bly Manor, hmm. but I cried a lot in this. Sometimes little tears and sometimes proper upsetting episode seven level of tears. Mm-hmm. And I think that is because their responses and their their reality and Alonka's progress is always it's always feels very real. Mm. It it's also the fact that you're also hoping for them because this is a show for all of them. A, you're hoping for all of them. You're hoping that they will fix each other. And there's this there's this fantasy in episode in episode seven seven seven. <sighs> Why is it always Axel Carolyn's episodes? <laughs> Why? <laughs> Absolutely unacceptable. Just to see to see a glimpse of a future for characters who we know from the moment we meet them actually don't have a future. That episode is so interesting mm. because it's simultaneously a tragedy when Anya this is the episode that starts with uh, we see Anya working in a supermarket and scanning yeah. things, and we know it's 1997. Mm-hmm. Um, the, and the reality in which she lives, in which the ritual works, and the ritual doesn't help anyone else and just helps her. Everybody is mm-hmm. past. That is tragic. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. But what is actually the case in that episode is that she is not. She does not live. The others live. And it shows a simultaneous tragedy in imagination and reality. It hits with both. Both are equally horrifically tragic and i think that was a that was a especially deft work from from the writers there because it could have all gone so so wrong but to show us that so seemingly effortlessly and horrifically Mm. was was pretty incredible it was incredible because for a brief moment we're in their hands and we think that the ritual worked worked and we're glad for at least one of them yeah the the future is back there's something that um a writer called Ruth Picardi wrote. Um, she she died of cancer fairly young, and she wrote this thing when she was chronicling her battle that the thing that she found most difficult to handle was the loss of the future. So while she was living um and dying while she was dying, it was knowing that all of the things that would happen without her there. Yeah, and you know, and she had a family and and two children and stuff. And Anya's gained the future in this new reality, but just actually doesn't have anything to do with it, or doesn't know what to do with it because she had already made peace with it not existing. That's it. And what is the point of it existing without these friends that she found at the end? It's the it's kind of the there's a third tragedy there, which is the fact that. In either one of the possibilities of the possible ways of this like fork, uh, it's always tragic. Yeah. So actually, there is simply no possibility of a happy ending. No. And this is the episode. This is the fucking episode that actually tells us that actually there is no ritual. There is no miracle cure. No. The re- the possibility of a happy ending is just not there. And we've kind of been, you know, ignoring it and being in denial for six episodes until then. And it is in episode seven through this imagined afterlife for Anya that it really dawns on. At least that's when it really dawned on me. I'm like, oh, no, there is no there is no goddesses. There's no ritual. Yeah, I think I naively hoped. 
I was so yeah. naive. But and I think that's a that's a narrative construction too, because we want mm. that to be the case because of what we've seen before. The magic works. Or mm-hmm. even if you don't think the magic works, it works in another way. And I do think that the show explores that in a not the ritual being the supernatural, but somewhere else having supernatural. So I think it draws back mm-hmm. there, but not potentially in the way that we'd expect or desperately want for these characters. Well, this is this is my question because I'm still unsure of where I stand on this. Do you think there are supernatural elements to this? Yes. Talk to me about that. So I think the ballet dancer has been repaired. That was yes. that was the case. The ballet dancer yes. was repaired. This is a fact. So we the voice through the radio was not. That was mm-hmm. Sandra giving uh Spencer hope. So that wasn't mm-hmm. real. That didn't happen. But Ilonka seeing a past that did not exist in that corridor, I think, mm-hmm. and seeing the faces of the two, the elderly couple, yes, the things haunting in the mirrors, etc. Mm-hmm. I think those are supernatural, especially since we saw the painting in the at the end, which was mm-hmm. that couple, mm-hmm. the the couple in the picture where the yes. man and the woman that we've seen. So I think. But I do not think that that supernatural world exists in the same one where you can fix, sadly fix yourself with a ritual. But I do think that something else lies there in that house that they are experiencing adjacently to the Paragon story. So this is why I was unsure. It's because I saw all those elements, but all those elements feel like teases. They are. They're not. <laughs> they're they're not. Ex- <laughs> they're not explained. No. They're no. not finalized. They're, no. But that's why it's because they're they're still the unknown. So they're still big question marks. So maybe they will all have natural explanations. Maybe the folia dieu, the shared delusion of two. Maybe that's mm. just that. But maybe it's not. And I think that's why we get that question mark of that because that's why she's holding that ballet dancer because you know Anya herself said that she would give signs wouldn't she she mm-hmm. she would be, she'd be far more than just vague shapes you'd fucking know about mm-hmm. it and they don't yeah but the ballet dancer's fixed and like someone else could have done it but just like um the character oh gosh i can't remember her name with her lies mm-hmm. some of her lies went lies and i think mm-hmm. that's again another question mark i mean does it feel like it feels like, as and especially the actual ending, the fi- the very very final shot of um, well, the reveal that Heather's character is also involved in a paragon cult, has a tattoo of it on her back, the portrait of the elderly ghost people mm-hmm. in her office, the fact that she is also uh, hairless underneath yep. her wig, which kind of marks her. Not necessarily. I mean, it doesn't actually make much sense, but marks her kind of perhaps as a former cancer patient. Yeah, she's had treatment. Yeah, um, like all of those are very open ended for for a Flanagan show, which makes me wonder if there's going to be a second season. Exactly, they feel like setups. They are. I think this might be a series. He doesn't do series. Maybe this is Mm -hmm. a series because this that you wouldn't have. You wouldn't have put. There's. They're not answers. They don't. None of those things Mm -hmm. have answers. Um, the problem being that a second season is going to be. There's more Christopher Pike stories, but things are going to get sadder. Yes. And I was going to ask you kind of how we've kind of talked about um, Ilonka a lot, but how did you find the rest of the characters and their stories? And kind of uh, what I alluded to in the beginning of our chat was how did they use the stories that they were telling 
to talk to us about the characters. I um, I loved the fact that that became more apparent as we went along. Mm. Um, characters, the hitchhiker story in particular. I oh think. Oh my god! I think we knew the ending of the hitchhiker story long before she realized. You know, mm-hmm. but it was mm-hmm. all the more agonizing for it. And again, that's that's another Christopher Pike story. Um, mm-hmm. But the fact that that was a clear that there was no, it's not the subtext rapidly becoming the text. It was like this is the text. <laughs> this this is the text here. This is a heartbreakingly sad text. Um, and I I enjoyed the fact that they became more literal. That they became mm-hmm. more literal as time went on. I also enjoyed the three part uh, serial killer story. <laughs> which initially I wasn't sure because I think out of all the actors I don't love the actor that played Kevin Igby Rigney mm. I, he grew on me but I didn't mm-hmm. initially I didn't feel like he was as strong as the rest of them mm. but then I think I, I grew quite fond of him especially as Dandy um, mm. but yeah I love the fact that, it, that these these tropes were addressing they're very real demons and doing that Buffy mm. thing. That was a that it was quite welcome, even if it was gradually more on the nose. I really loved. Um, I think the the Hitchhiker Natsuki story was my favorite. Not only because I think it was the one that I found genuinely creepy. Yeah, it, it felt incredibly teenagey because yes. it's a it's a way for a teenager who is struggling with depression to explain what she was feeling. Yeah. When she didn't have words to explain how she was feeling, but mostly because she was only telling that story to a mesh. Yes. You know, there theirs is the love affair, I think, that actually I vibed with much more than the one between Ilonka and Kevin. Yeah. Because that just felt so to to paraphrase you kind of schmaltzy because yep. they had this whole like well they won't oh, be. we're destined and you know well they won't be and i'm like oh i'm gonna help you with your girlfriend and like oh isn't it awkward whether mm-hmm. it's like in the background notsky and amesh kind of fall in love organically and have this real moment of just like actually getting to know each other warts and all and it's her telling her story to him and basically then telegraphing it for us as well to kind of oh no this is what happened next as well it's I, so. it is so it is and it's do you know what i love about that especially is that these characters and i think the reason that we need to have alonka to come into is because these characters don't need to explain things to each other anymore mm. they don't need to explain their lives to each other they don't need to they understand each other at a level where actually the 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 things that they talk about together are almost everything else is sort of regardless of that you know their 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 mm-hmm. illness is already a part of them that they don't need to explain or apologize for and i especially mm-hmm. found that in that relationship where they share a room and they're in there or or he's getting on un- he's oh, he his motor skills he can't catch something or do something mm-hmm. and i think the characters having that understanding of each other just made it all the sadder because we're kind mm. of looking at it from a from a different position as well. And I, I thought that was, I found their relationship particularly moving in that way. I wanted to ask as well, because this is the first show, unless I'm mistaken, this is the first time the Flanagan shares a co-creator credit with Leah Fong. And I think that that's quite significant, not only because it's the first time that he's doing that, but that... um. It's a it's a position where you really feel someone's stamp. Mm. 
Yes. Kind of, do you feel Fong stamp on the show versus kind of the previous solo Flanagan productions? I think so. I think you can really. I think you can feel a different vibe to it. I think mm. there's. Um. I think there's a. You can feel a Flanagan guiding presence, but I think that a lot of the lightness of the characters and the kind of these very they're very very different from who we've had before, and I think that does come from an extra perspective on in terms of a creative team. And I think who was also involved a lot, I saw her name appear a lot, was Julia Bickle, who was the one that absolutely annihilated me by the end of Bly Manor. <laughs> so, and I felt I felt her writing as well. And I think it's mm-hmm. interesting that you can feel a different, you can feel a different approach. Um, and I think it's important with this kind of situations where you've got these characters who are all very different. They have very different backgrounds and ethnicities mm-hmm. and genders and sexualities. And I think when you have something like that, you need to be as open as possible to different, to everyone, everyone's viewpoints. And I do think mm. that there was a definite, I did feel like, I mean, it's not ever, I've never felt like Flanagan's previous stuff has been small minded at all, but I no. do think uh, quite the opposite, but I do think mm-hmm. there is an openness here. And when you are addressing our favorite theme flavored buttered toast, you <laughs> need different you need different sort of eyes on it. And I, I did feel like there was a slightly different feel. And what do you make of the, I know, except I think for the first, uh, no, for the second episode, for the two Danas, um, every other story has been pulled from Christopher Pike's previous yep. stories. Um, what do you make of the actual mini stories that exist as standalones you know we've talked about Notsky's one but there's you know the one where Rahul Kohli pops up which video is games. a mesh story yep. yeah the video game one um, there's the two Danas which is very doppelgangery very black swanny very literally black swan yep. um, do they kind of work as little standalone stories not without the bit around them mm-hmm. I think we need That's to I thought as well <sighs> I mean, I, I did enjoy the noir element of uh, Langenkamp's with, with her in her amazing noir office. But I did think that some of them, especially that one, was like a school play almost with the characters mm-hmm. that you know. And that's what it's meant to be. You know, it's meant to be them donning a different face, but actually just being the same. It's almost like there, there's only a cast of six people, but you've got to make Captain Corelli's mandolin and all you have is like a cuddly goat along with you. You know, it's that kind of shoestring character approach Mm -hmm. so i i enjoyed watching them but i Mm. think i only enjoyed watching them in in place where they were i think they would have almost seemed and maybe that's why christopher pike's work hasn't been massively translated i think injected with the life and characters that we know well i think they go down Mm. far better as part of a grander piece i agree i think they're much they're very beautifully used as ways uh, as characterization but fundamentally if this show were in lesser hands yes and there were taking each of the stories kind of on face value and just being well this is what you're meant to be scared by these are the spooky stories they're meant to be scary they're they're not no and i don't think i think they kind of read them and saw the heart in them they didn't see they didn't choose those stories for their spookiness they chose them and they adapted them for what they can tell us about these characters and whether they feel fitting to the characters themselves like the noir one i kind of have a bed bug about being overusing noir in shows i'm like come on like can we 
do anything else. Yeah. I just, I have a, it's just really cringy when it's done badly. Yeah. And basically anyone that does it outside of the 1940s, it's done badly. Of course it book. is. Just let it lie. <laughs> yeah, stop if, this. Unless you're Robert Mitchum or Lauren Bacall or Humphrey Bogart, don't even try. Yeah. Like, it's just not going to work. Just won't. Um, Although I do love the toothpick detail instead of cigarettes. But <laughs> I agree that they're just not, they're not meant to be scary. No. And they're not. So they work, but only as, um, as extensions of the characters. Yeah. I think people will... Um... I think it'll get. I think people will be critical of that. Um, Do you think if you are not, if if you're not watching for the heart, I think there will be mm. some people go oh, that wasn't scary, and it's like well, it was not meant to be scary in the same way that Haunting of Hill House was objectively terrifying at points. You're, mm-hmm. you're never going to get that moment, and I think, but I do think quite early on you do realize that that's not what these are for. You know, mm. quite quite quickly you realize that's what neither what not what these are for and getting those interruptions or them renaming stuff or replacing a happy face with a hourglass like i think that's all that's the kind of stuff you're there for with them we talk quite a lot about elonka but i think that the other character that we need to talk about in detail is actually anya yes what do you make of anya because she's very much the brash um you know furious one at the start, and the one that delivers all the all the heart in the end. Yeah, she hits out with all the zingers, trying to pretend that she's so hard and against everything. And it's even though you know because you know the teen tropes, but you also know life that actually she's just defending a very soft heart, and you know the fact that she's trying to defend herself of being hurt. And I loved all the sort of journeys we went through with the fact that Ilanka would be like, "Oh, I'm I'm trying this tea." I'm trying this, I'm trying this. And she'd be like, oh, I've seen this happen before. And she would understandably react to it in the right way. Um, but I enjoyed watching I enjoyed watching her journey. I thought her performance was amazing. I, mm. I enjoyed her shorts potentially the most <laughs> out of all of them. <laughs> um, and then I cried like a baby when I realized that she existed in one of the stories with all the mm. other characters. But yeah, I loved her journey and her brashness. But yeah, she was... It makes me... <laughs> Yes. She was lovely. <laughs> I think... Sir. Shush. Sorry about him. Um, the other character I think that really, really hit me in the feels was Spence. Mm-hmm. Especially because as soon as we were told that he's there because he he has developed AIDS... He he feels apart from everyone else. Yep. And Ilonka makes this mistake of kind of almost pulling the face, the pity face. Yep. And there's so much care, particularly from Mark, the nurse, in the way that, you know, when he gets cut and he's healing him up and he just says, you know, he's he's almost explaining things that I'm sure Spence has had to uh have had to endure many times over. But he's just reassuring him. I'm, this is not for my protection. This is for your protection. Yeah. And Mark is also this gateway into, you know, this queer community of activists who are not afraid, not afraid of him, not afraid of AIDS, not afraid of anything. And it is, I think it's one of the most beautiful, possibly one of the most adult scenes, even considering Anya's death, one of the most adult scenes because... Spence also goes through this journey of not self-acceptance because he has that, but knowing that even if it's not for him, 
there was a future for people like him. Yeah, he's not alone. Yes. He's, and he literally, the nurse says to him, he's like, here's your people. These are your mm. people. And that is only a really short, it was, it's almost like a glimpse that we see. Mm. But we don't, we almost don't need any more because he has just been brought in with open arms into this community who understand him. And yeah, you're right. Him understanding that there is a future and he's not alone. Mm. And people like him aren't alone. We are not alone. Mm. And yeah, it that hit me repeatedly at different points as well with him going to his family mm. and the fact that he then went back to his family and that he was at the hospice because of his illness, but also kind of out of sight, out of sight, out of mind for his sexuality for for his mm. parents as well, which I found it was just like, no, you will you will appreciate me and. I love you and I am also loved and that is enough for me. I am loved. And yeah, watching that journey was, that was emotional as well. Why, why do we do this to ourselves, Anna? <laughs> why does Flanagan do why this does, to honestly, us? Honestly, why does he just put our emotions through the ringer? It's just, um, I could not stop watching this show and yeah. I could not stop thinking about it. You know what I was thinking about while I was watching this show of, you know, the famous Joan Didion quote, uh, we tell each other stories in order to live. Yes. It felt made literal in yeah. the show. And it's it's not just because they're telling literally telling each other stories. I think there's also something in this show that I haven't really seen in Flanagan's earlier Netflix shows where it does feel it at times like a treatise on horror itself. There's this yeah. thing that happens that is literally said i think in the very first episode you know when the they're interjecting and commenting on the first story and a character says startled isn't the same as scared mm -hmm. and i wrote down as like fuck you mike flanagan you're literally <laughs> telling us how you're scaring us you're telling us exactly what you're doing from the very first moment, what you've done over, what, four Netflix shows and however many films. There's this thing that he does that is insidious, that goes under your skin. And I don't know what it is because it really fucking hurts every time you watch a Flanagan production. And yet, I cannot wait to do it again. And like, I think this show, more than any other, talks about... Not necessarily the healing, but the comforting part of being scared. Yes. And I think he's talking about it in a in a very human, very um tough kind of way, you know, about dealing with mortality, with illness, or even with the possibility of living if you if you if you're chronically ill or if you're terminally ill. But then also he's talking to us about stories, about fiction, and about horror fiction in particular. Which again, itself isn't afraid to philosophize. You know, that's, mm. it's not a genre that will turn against talking, diving deep into things and pulling things apart. Pulling uncomfortable things apart, because that's why we like it, right? Because it's uncomfortable, it's other and strange, and that's exactly what he does. And you're, you're saying startled, not... um scared in that same first episode i think he fits all i think he fits more jump scares in than have been in the entire all of the flanavers <laughs> yeah, in about exactly. six you want, seconds do you want jumps you want i'll give you jumps yeah here you've got jumps for have days jumps. bitch here you go 
Here you you want a black Jane cat? Horace Here's two. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, so that's him again doing that of being like, this is what you're here for, but it's also not what you're here for. That's not why you come here, but I'll serve it to you and you'll jump. And now we will do the rest. <laughs> so before we wrap up, Louise, mm-hmm. what other things have we not discussed about the Midnight Club? Have we skipped anything important? It's uh, probably. But <laughs> <laughs> we need 10 hours to cover everything. We need a lot to cover everything. Um, we need a lot to cover everything. But I actually, one thing, when we're talking about season two, I hope there is more. Mm. I hope there is more. Mm-hmm. Because I do think that more than any of the other, actually significantly more than the other, the others mm. concluded very artfully. Um, trying not to think about the hand on the shoulder because I well up just when I think <laughs> about it. But this added a question mark as well as that hourglass, you know. There is one thing that we haven't discussed, one character we haven't discussed. Julia Jane. Julia Jane. Of course. Julia Jane. Julia Jane. Julia Jane. Who we met, when we met, we knew she was a villain, right? We're like, "Mm mm-mm, you don't get to do all this. Maybe it's because I was like really feeling the show, but I was like, oh, it's so nice of Flanagan to cast Samantha as not a villain. (laughs) I was like, nobody's this obsessed with chamomile. No, no. (laughs) She says drinking chamomile tea right now out of a scale of Listen. Listen, Julia loves her herbs. Mm-hmm. She loves her plants. She loves her vibes. She and does. I was like, you know what? Go off, vegan queen. But <laughs> no, <laughs> actually, she's no. a murderess. She's happy to poison everyone for the fact that she might get a ritual. Because actually, that is one thing we haven't discussed. Not only have we not discussed her, but we haven't really discussed actually what happened when she went back to see Regina, who said, mm-hmm. you're going to come back through. You're going to look like you've been in the forest for a week. We don't know. What happened we in don't. that week? No, we don't. So was she trying to do that ritual to do it again? I don't mm-hmm. think so, because we don't think that ritual works. Or was she doing that ritual because whatever happened in that week made her believe that it worked? I mean, do we know that it didn't work for her? No. Because <laughs> she's still alive. <laughs> so we don't know. Well, exactly. Like, clearly something did work because Mm -hmm. she got cured. Mm -hmm. But we don't know if it was a case of... Because what did Stanton say it was? Another misdiagnosis, like Sandra. Yeah. But maybe it wasn't. I mean, we we don't have enough information to really say one way or another. Mm -mm. But we can see that Julia has clearly dedicated her entire life to believing and staying close to the source of that power. Mm -hmm. There's also the unexplained uh, seed of, you know, what is going on in the the soil, like in the place of Brightcliff. Like, Mm -hmm. there is clearly some bad or good or possibly both juju over there. And we don't really get a clear explanation of why it's happening julia kind of hit explicitly says the real source of power is in that in that area in that property not in the area next to it that she owns it's like there's something in there it's like what is it and if something happened in there because um they also um talk about the 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 myth of years eaters which are ghosts which are there Mm -hmm. to eat the remaining years that the teenagers wouldn't have which i thought was a terrifying just throwaway line which is nothing's throwaway in flanaganville Um, so i thought that was an interesting thing so if there is power and a ritual did work did that Mm. ritual then interrupt something at brightcliff where we then 
resurrected the old owners for them to see. Like there's whole, there's all manner of, oh, now we're talking about mysticism again. <laughs> and is it, and is it actually that Stanton, Heather's character, is that, is she one of the years eaters? Like, is that why she maybe is still as young because she's eating up the, the unlived years? year, unlived years of the teenagers who die in Brightcliff? In which case then, the the like, and I think that's why it's so difficult to sort of con- to match that up with how she acts to Ilonka, which mm. is so rational, and so she doesn't hit her with you know Instagram comment yeah. platitudes. No, you doesn't. know she just hits her with she's very clear, but she's for she's very um she's very understanding and she's very relatable, mm-hmm. but she's also very very truthful, and I do mm-hmm. feel. If that comes from a villain place, I really, it's hard to kind of put those two things together. But also there's the open question of who is she talking to on the phone when she has, and I I really love this moment of kind of seeing one of the only adults who is constantly surrounded by this. And the only things that we know about kind of Stanton is that she had a son who died. We're presuming kind of from similar illness. Um, She owns this place. She runs it. We kind of see her character. But then this moment of... Uh, of fragility that we get from her when she's like, I don't know what's happening. One of them is not sick. I'm just here smoking a joint and freaking out. Yeah, who is she talking to? That is who, who is she talking? Hmm. I. Th- but what is you're she- saying about adults, I find really interesting because I loved mm. that all the way through because it was a teenager's world, all mm. the way through. Constantly, you're like, how are they out of bed? How does nobody know? How does this? Why? Why is this a thing? And then she says, "There's that one line." She's like, "Why do you think there's always so much yes. firewood?" We know the midnight club exists, and it's almost like we think we've been living in the kind of fictional Secret Seven style kids only world because mm-hmm. that's just how it is. But actually, it's only mm-hmm. because the adults let them. And I mm-hmm. thought that was a really nice thing because it's, it's quite tropey, that isn't it? Of just it's a kids world and the adults are just the grown ups. But it's only in this, it's reality. They let it happen. Mm-hmm. They fuel it. Mm-hmm. They make sure there's tea. They, you know, it's, I love that extra element. That's another layer of, another yes. extra bonus layer of, of, we didn't need that, but it's a very Flanagan touch. It is. And also it's, it's also so grounded, right? It's like, yes, we know this exists. We support it as long as you're sensible, mm-hmm. but we're, you know, we're just going to make sure that you're warm yeah. while you tell each other. It's really stories. sweet. It's really yeah. sweet. I love that. And, you know, you, you mentioned Mark and his, like, retelling of Interview with the Vampire at the time. I also just found it was so sweet, particularly when Zach tried to do the Antonio Banderas accent. <laughs> Armand. It was, Armand. It was so Armand. good. It was delightful. It's delightful. It is delightful. And, can we just please talk before we go about the scene between Alonka and her dad? with your child with the poem she reads the poetry is it a poetry or a a reading it's a poem she it's a long telling her dad how to cope with her death yep yep no no just no no but but i guess for it, that was in the final episode, wasn't it? That was very much mm-hmm. an acceptance. That was the full, yeah. as you're saying, going through those layers. That is the acceptance right there. Yeah. And we needed it and she needed it. Mm-hmm. So even if there isn't another, even if there's not a season two, 
we have mm-hmm. seen that emotional arc, which actually, as we've discovered with Flanagan, is the only one that matters. Yes. She's, it's, it's her cycle. Like she starts from a place of disbelief and she ends up accepting it. And she has to be disappointed in order to find that acceptance. And in order to see that the person that she also now needs to help accept the fact that she's going to die is her father. Oh. Fuck. <laughs> <sighs> now we've probably said everything and cried. Yes. So on that very cheerful note, <laughs> any final thoughts on the Midnight Club? I think it's very important to tell everyone that's listening that when you sent me a calendar invite for this, you just said Anna and Louise cry into a microphone. Show me the lie, Louise. <laughs> it's true. Show me the fucking lie. <laughs> nope, final th- I mean, I... When I watched it, I had to watch it very quickly because I was watching it for another work Mm -hmm. purpose. So there will be further Midnight Club content from me that will be arriving, I think, in two days because I recorded everything for it last week. Um, Mm. But regardless of the fact that I had to watch it for work, it never felt like work. And I always think Mm. that's a a masterful thing that even when you think you have to mainline something to get through it, that it just made it something else entirely. So I think Mm. that's another that's another tick. How annoying. I mean, we can't have Flanagan make a bad thing at some point. We we won't be able to cope. I know. I'm also, I'm almost disappointed that we're in such agreement on this one. <laughs> I still convinced you so on Bly. Right? <laughs> almost. almost. I really, I really want to rewatch it. I kind of want to rewatch every single Flanagan thing. Now. I'm going to start, I am going to rewatch them all. Hill House onwards, I am absolutely going to do it. Damn it. No, mm-hmm. I mean like early stuff. I mean his movies as well. Oh, I, I watch Hush quite a lot. And I really, I yeah, really I like Oculus. I love Hush. Oculus. And his Ouija movie as well. Yes. Yeah. It's great. Which I'm screening. Oh, are you? <laughs> I'm screening that at the BFI. Of course you are. <laughs> yeah, I, I love it. Yeah, so I like his stuff. movies. I, I remember I mainland this. I think I watched seven episodes in one day. You did. And I had, I had well, yeah, because I was texting you. There was so much other stuff that I needed to see. So like I've been stacking up a lot of viewings that I need to do for work. And I kept putting off other stuff I needed to watch because I just wanted to spend more time with them. I didn't want to let go of these characters. And this, you know, on paper, it is dire and sad. But it isn't. No, it's not. there's, There's so much. There's moments of such joy in it it is warm and cozy and it is so unbelievably emotionally intelligent for lack of a better description it is i'm like damn damn, it. damn. <laughs> well it's a great show and perhaps disappointing podcast content that we're not uh <laughs> at each other's throats because Although- we disagree on this <laughs> Maybe with the whole, maybe with the fall of the House of Usher. Who knows? Yeah, who knows? Maybe that will divide us once again. A flan, a Flanagan meets Poe. A flan Poe. I'm excited. Might yeah. reread some Poe in yeah, advance. That's a plan. <laughs> Louise, as always, thank you so much. Thank you for having me for your time and for your insight. Where can people find you, and uh, what other Midnight Club related stuff have you got coming up? Uh, people can find me on Twitter at shiny underscore demon and you will find 
on Netflix UK's YouTube channel, still watching Netflix, um, an explanation of what you just watched or a lot of question marks. Either of those. <laughs> Thank you again so much. And I hope that everyone who's listening to this uh, has not just enjoyed the Midnight Club and this conversation, but also completely soaked whatever podcatcher they're listening to this on in tears. Yes. I hope Absolutely. you cried. <laughs> God, that's the most sadistic thing you've ever said. <laughs>